the people here have all fallen in love with their own meaninglessness, but I'm not sure what that means. I mean, what else can we do but mean? Just the other day, for example, we threw strawberries from the roof at the birds. We can't help it. I mean, we can't help anything at all. Our faces are swelling up into the realm of the poppable. Then we look at our poppable faces at the glass, at the aquarium, the sharks circling, and we mean away as we embrace the void. Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. life just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline that we're all just biding our time until the sweet sweet release of death no don't save riley <laughs> take her to the moon for me okay Welcome, friends, to another episode of Embrace the Void, where my obsession is your distraction. I am your OGI host, Aaron Rabinowitz, and this week we are flipping the script a little bit. I've been kind of obsessed, losing my mind a little bit around GPT-4. We've done a couple episodes on the show, and I have felt like I couldn't quite convey my my feelings about it. So I have enlisted the help of my emotional support captain, <laughs> Callie Wright of the <laughs> SS Philosophers in Space podcast and the Queer Explaining podcast to come take over as interim chair, take the interview seat for a second and run a conversation here for me about all of the arguments around GPT-4. For those who are not familiar with Callie, what are you doing? Stop listening to this show and listen to Philosophers in Space. Callie is a professional super nerd who hosts the Queer Spending Podcast. They will correct your gender theory pretty much perfectly in perfect Klingon while wiring up their living room to look like Starship Discovery. So, yeah, Captain, my captain, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello. Yeah, that checks out. Uh, and I just need to make it very clear, this has not much to do with the episode, but I just need to say that emotional support, Captain, probably the best thing I have ever been called ever. That just <laughs> that just encapsulates so much of who I aspire to be as a mm -hmm. person. And so mm -hmm. uh, that's what I appreciate about you. That's what I appreciate about you and that you still appreciate it after the emotional psychic damage that I've been doing to you over on Philosophers in Space recently, <laughs> which will now follow us over here to Embrace the Void. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this because, like, I really do want to parse through, uh, you know, let me explain even. Dear Sweet Callie has been nice enough to do this twice. Uh, we did this <laughs> once, and it didn't go as well as I would like. I felt like I was rambling all over the place. And afterwards, talking to Jonathan, Jerry, and some other folks, realized that what I really wanted was an episode where we go through all of the arguments that are circling around GPT-4 at this point and just kind of check in on their plausibility. And so I also wanted to save the After Dark uh, from our first recording, which was amazing. So that's going to be the After Dark for this one. But we wanted to fix the first part. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through a bunch of arguments that we've kind of uh, listed out or ideas, intuitions, back and forths about GPT and just sort of say what feels, you know, functional or not functional at this point. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will admit coming to this, I have a bit of a technical know-how of how these systems work, but I am far less versed in the implications for like culture and philosophy and all of that sort of stuff. And so this is an interesting like learning conversation for me as well. So I'm I'm just I don't know. I'm I'm stoked about it. You ask good questions and you will humor me while I do the thing, and that is my primary needs at the moment. So thank you. Hey, hey, I'm here for it because, uh, you know, I, I do have some skepticism of my own. I don't know that it's as strong as some people's is, but like a lot of the things that we're going to talk about are things that I also just like to know for my own knowledge in terms of like how I interact with these things, because as a creator, obviously AI tools are going to be unavoidable. Uh, everybody's calling their stuff AI, regardless of how close it is <laughs> to what sure. we understand as AI. And so like, regardless of how I feel about it, I am very sure that it is a thing I'm going to have to learn how to navigate. And so like mm -hmm. valuable pro personal process for me anyways. Yeah. And let, before I dive into my ranting, let me ask you what is your perspective experience at this moment with regard to GPT-4 in particular? Cause that's what we're going to focus on. It's what I've been spending most of my time with. And I think it's different than the other ones, but I'm curious, like what you have, you've spent any time with it other than having to hear me rant about it too much. Like, what do you feel like you understand or think about it at this point? Yeah. When you started talking a bunch about it, I definitely went and started playing around with it and I started testing it a little bit. So I, I went and I asked it to, learn my morals and ethics. And so I spent a lot of time giving it lists of my values and the things that I prioritize, the things that matter to me, my values, all of that sort of stuff. And then I started throwing questions at it about how I would respond to a particular moral question or how I would make a, make a decision based on my morals. And the one that I came up with that, that I was really impressed with its answer to was as someone who cares deeply about racial justice and who cares deeply about queer and trans rights, if let's say that I, I am the holder of some funding and I have a racial justice focused group and an LGBTQ rights focused group coming to me for funding for some community mm -hmm. project that, um, that they want to, to do in the community, how would I make that decision? Right? Like wh where would I go in that? And it was frustratingly good at getting into all of the anxiety brain arguments that I would get into mm. about the, the things that I would weigh in terms of one practical things like, you know, do the leadership of these groups have a history such that I can have confidence in the follow through in one group versus another, which group already has enough funding uh, is, the the racial justice group uh are, are queer folks involved with that group with the lgbt group mm -hmm. is it racially diverse all of those sorts of things that would sort of weight my decision making in one way or another based on the values that i have it was very good at not it being kind of non-committal while answering those questions in a way that felt like it definitely blurred the lines between it wants to not give me a confident answer because the programming knows that it's not necessarily good at that sort of thing. Yeah. Let me uh, ask you or, yeah. Uh -huh. Or is it, is it doing the same sort of internal analysis that I get into because it felt very familiar like that. And I don't know that I came up with a good answer for which I actually believe is happening. Yeah. In terms of the familiarity experience, how, 
like close to the uncanny valley would it be for like having a conversation with me about a complicated ethical issue like how much did the lack of satisfying yet hard to necessarily disagree with answer is basically the same thing that you'd expect if you came to me you know like if you sucked it up and came and asked me about something it it wasn't quite on that level because so, so it would do the morals and values waiting type thing but then mm-hmm. it would also it felt like kind of purposely simplify the situation to make the answer more difficult and so hmm. for example when i would ask like are you know each group obviously has a focus in racial justice or lgbtq rights for example but are is each group well represented within the other right so we're not like and and obviously we can get into very deeply nuanced arguments about the overlap between those two things but when mm-hmm. i started asking questions like is each group inclusive of the other the answer was very clearly for this we will assume they are mm-hmm. and what i would ask like you know which group has a more experienced leadership and has a, a likelihood that they'll follow through with whatever their commitments are right. it was like assume that they're both equally that way <laughs> yeah you know? yeah so it'll um, hedge on the hypotheticals and sometimes right. on the conclusions right um right which i i get that um and that probably is a little bit of ass covering i i would suspect so we'll, we'll talk yeah. about the alignment problem that probably what you're seeing there's a little bit of the organ you know like the company doesn't want to get sued because it tells somebody that it ethically ought to do something that it shouldn't do right. or ethically ought to do anything that it does and thereby has you know caused an action to occur like i don't think they want to be causing things to occur at that level um yeah. so yeah but that's a cool sort of a good sense of like the kind of weirdness of it the level of it because like the first thing that i feel like we want to talk about here is the background assumption that i think i feel like i run into a lot which is GPT-4 is just like GPT-3.5 or any of the other ones is just a little bit stronger or something. Right. And the reason that that matters is because GPT-3.5 was like spectacularly bad at a lot of things. And Arguably. Was, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, hallucinated a lot. And it, it mm-hmm. very much had the quality of like delivering confident answers that were sometimes spectacularly and weirdly wrong. And mm-hmm, the assumption mm-hmm. is that 4.0 is just like, a, a tiny step up from that where your perspective is that it is like a fundamentally different thing almost. Am I? Yeah. Right? I would say that it's closer to having like emergent, like next level capacities compared to 3.5 that like 3.5 is sort of a cute little toy that like does some things that are a little creepy sometimes, but then quickly falls apart. Whereas right. like GPT four isn't perfect. You can still for- you break it in various ways, but like it feels much closer to like, raising a question of does this thing understand what it is saying and what is our definition of understanding really mean in this context um so yeah it does feel different it feels like it's able to parse nuance and things so the reason this matters right um i decided to like broadly categorize our arguments into two kinds of arguments about gpt which is limitation arguments and harm arguments and they're mm-hmm. related obviously if it has certain limitations it might going to cause certain harms or something but right. i think it's useful to talk about them separately um you know so there's lots of different versions of like gpt is bad at x um mm-hmm. and the question is is four really bad at it compared to 3.5 and for the most part the answer is not nearly as bad in ways that are sometimes really unnerving i think yeah, well, and I think the other part of that too is 
is it is it bad in ways that super super matter because mm-hmm, obviously mm-hmm. people are bad at things too mm-hmm. and in that case maybe the problem is not necessarily the thing but our misunderstanding of its limitations yes the limitations of any entity to answer certain questions for example right. right like so yeah i think we should work through these limitation arguments and we can talk about which ones are good bad like unreasonable etc cool um, let's do that so this would be a good time actually for you to you know use some of your fancy expertise understanding and maybe start us off with like the argument the stochastic parrot argument right sort of what what is it to say that like gpt is a stochastic parrot and why is that potentially a bad thing right and so fundamentally the way that ai generally works as we understand it is there are large language models the idea being that it is taken essentially everything that it could see on the internet and used it to create a model of like given one word what is the most probable next word and the the general idea is that if it takes in enough information and is steered hopefully in the correct way that will lead to it generally reporting correct answers to things and leading people in in correct ways when mm-hmm. it, uh, when, when you ask questions of it and so and so a stochastic parrot is essentially the idea that like this thing is really good at generating language, but there's nothing underlying that tells it or that, that lets you think that it's doing any kind of reasoning, that it's just really good at spitting out words based on probabilities and that that's not reasoning and there isn't actually reasoning happening under that. Yeah. So do you think that matters and like why? I think, I think it's worth thinking about for sure mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there's probably an argument that hu- what humans are doing to reason is not necessarily a lot different um but mm-hmm. i don't have enough knowledge to like be super confident in claiming that is like true or not true but mm-hmm. i do think it's something that's at least worth thinking about yeah i definitely agree and i think you're right the the argument that i see going around very often in response to this which i'm sympathetic in intent but maybe not in the phrasing is like humans are doing the same thing um, which is, you know, basically saying, you know, we're trying to figure out if this thing is an artificial general intelligence, which is we're trying to figure out how flexible and smart it is and able to do a bunch of different tasks. And in doing so, we're seeing that it gets better at general language capacities, even though we don't know if it understands any of the things it's saying. And then it's like, well, maybe it's the case that also humans don't really understand what they're saying as they're saying it. And they're just doing the same thing. Right. Um, and, and so like that would matter for two re- a couple of reasons, potentially, right? It could mean that it's easy to trick it to say bad things or do bad things because it doesn't understand enough to under, you know, like catch when you're trying to trick it, right? Um, so that would be like, it would be really susceptible to various framing biases for questions that cause you to get around its moral alignment. Um, or it doesn't maintain a steady moral alignment because it doesn't understand morals. Or it just, uh, we might be concerned because if it gets good enough at pretending to be us but doesn't understand anything it's saying, then we might have a, a, like an ethical disconnect between how we treat it versus what's actually going on inside of it. Um, so I think those are a couple of the different reasons we could be concerned here. Yeah, and a thing that I've seen a couple of folks say that, it, like at least first brush, maybe feels like not a reason, not a, a thing to dismiss entirely, but maybe they're overstating the case a little bit, is that 
there's a certain group of people who are convinced that this is next level intelligence because this thing communicates exactly the way they do with like using the same words. And it's kind of a, a reframing of the idea that we think the, the degree to which something understands our language is the degree to which it's intelligent without analyzing Mm -hmm. things more deeply than that. And Mm -hmm. the argument is that this thing has gotten really good at structuring its responses using a particular cadence or communication style that is familiar to a group of uh, essentially like tech bros that it kind of talks like a tech bro. And so tech bros are very impressed with it because it talks like they do, not necessarily because there's any underlying intelligence or knowledge behind it, but that it's just, and, and this is, kind of a more specific version of the stochastic parrot. This is a little more of a specific version of the stochastic parrot argument, but it's a more like Mm -hmm. it's, it's parroting you. And that's why you think it's good. Not just a general way of saying it. Yeah. And there's a similar concern on the ethical alignment side that we think it's aligned because it's aligned to us personally or something. Um, But there's also a longstanding sort of almost zombie, like it's not a zombie narrative, right? There's a reality to human psychology that going back as far as Eliza, which is the, one of the early chatbots that would just ask you questions, rhetorical questions, mm-hmm. you know, not rhetorical, but like, you know, tell me more. What, how did that make you feel? Psychology kind of stuff. Um, people had deep, meaningful relationships or experiences or connections to that thing, even knowing that it was this chatbot. So our brain is, I agree, sort of hardwired in some ways to like find intentionality everywhere i think it's why we believe in gods and things um but that particular version of that argument i'm not super like um convinced by partly because like what you said earlier you could get it to to talk like you i've gotten it to talk like me i've also gotten it to talk like shakespeare and a variety of other people in really weird ways that are pretty accurate so like its ability to mimic a bunch of different voices seems pretty substantial um also I wanted to add something on like why I'm concerned about saying humans are just doing the same thing. I think that's too strong a claim. I think it probably is true that humans don't understand a large part of what they're doing cognitively when they try to figure out, um, you know, what to say next, essentially. I don't think, though, that we're literally likely doing something. I, I don't know, right? Here's the thing. I'm not a psychologist on that front. Um, I don't think we're, we're doing the probabilistic analysis to the degree that GPT-4 is, what we're doing is something vaguer and fuzzier, but also probably like weird and flawed and perfect. So um, I guess my point there is, it doesn't need to be the case that GPT-4 is doing exactly what we are doing internally for it to be the case that both mechanisms are somewhat obscured to us. And that doesn't, you know, and that means that there is not like a super fundamental difference between like the black box in our minds and the black box in GPT-4, even if the like what's going on inside of them probably is different, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I could see the argument again. I'm not enough of an expert to say that, like, I, I for sure believe this, but just an argument that I could see is that especially when we're kids and we're learning how to communicate, that's a lot more like what we're doing where we're just like, Oh, I heard, I heard this word. I heard my mom say this in return. So this is what I say when this happens. And that's Mm -hmm. obviously a way over overly simplified version of, of what happens. But like when we start learning how to use language and reason, like we, it feels like we start in a substantially similar place if it's not the exact same thing. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree that 
humans, the, the, the evidence suggests that humans are like social learning creatures. A lot of our knowledge is learned through mimicry, that our greatest adaptation as human beings is the ability to quickly mimic, especially social cues, like who's looking at who, what are they reacting to, what is their emotional state, all of those kinds of awareness. You know, like we are evolved physically hardwired in various ways to be responsive to those things to have like an inborn sense of fairness but then it does get trained and reinforced like we essentially do the same thing they do and um in pulling some of the objections i actually went back to the original turing paper which I, when i teach ai ethics i include which is a really fun paper because it's like three minutes on the turing test and like 20 minutes on objections um but it also <laughs> His solution to a lot of the objections is what if you took an AI in the ch in the shape of a child's mind and then trained it? Hmm. So like back in the 60s, yeah. he's like, what if you just made this, right? And he's right. That's, that's what you're going to do. And it does work within certain definitions of the word work, right? Um, so, yeah, it is a stochastic parrot which is important for certain disadvantages and not important for other ones. And we have to be careful as we parse through them. And I want to like include a key concept here that I've, I've been pushing a lot of places is, is like internalism versus externalism. So when we say, can it reason, right? There's an internalist and an externalist definition for reasoning. The internal one is, is it doing the same thing in its head that we are? Is it understanding the concepts? The external version is, does it get the right answers? Right. right. Is it reliable? And in that sense, I don't think the stochastic parrot argument matters much. So if what you're asking in any given situation is, is it externally reliable? You know, unless we find that like certain things just can't be done by a stochastic parrot, which I'm skeptical of at this point, I don't think it's going to tell us more than just like, here's some of the reasons it might still be having reliability issues. And is there a way I can't think of on off the top of my head, but is there a way that you can test for the difference between the two? between a like a stochastic parrot and something that, like an internal and an external yeah no and that is the fundamental hard problem of consciousness as a perceptual problem right. we cannot look inside <laughs> of any entity and see if its external behaviors are actually correctly mimicking internal behaviors including you and me we do it you know and like this is one of turing's arguments for like the con against the consciousness objection he says you do it for all, all of us all the time and you don't have any proof that there's anything inside of any of our heads. And I think, you know, that's not quite right. I have good reason to think that you are a sentient being because you are an evolved creature just like me and I am a sentient being as far as I can tell. So unless I'm wrong about that part, which I don't think I am, I'm, I'm not wrong about other humans. And there's a difference between humans and AIs. They came up in different ways. They use different systems. So there is a reason to wonder if, if they are internally sentient or aware or conscious or those sorts of kinds of ver like there's a bunch of cluster concepts going around here um in in the movie ex machina which is my favorite analysis of this problem they describe it as the chess playing robot problem where it's like you have a chess playing computer it gets really really good at playing chess how do you ever know if it understands what chess is or whether it's playing chess and there's right. no way to find out um so yeah, it's a hard, it's the hard problem. Uh, it will stay hard, I think, really hard. Um, so yeah, should we talk about some of the specific, like what can it do, not do kind of things, I guess? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, I mean, the the most famous conversation that happens is the hallucinations, right? Where it just, just very confidently reports incredibly wrong things. And mm -hmm, so the other mm -hmm. side of my personal experience is for an episode of Philosophers in Space, I asked GPT to summarize the movie Lawnmower Man 2, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, it was fantastically classic. wrong. Like absolutely <laughs> confidently stated plot points that did not happen in the movie. 
Right. Uh, and and there's there's plenty of things like that. Um, you know, some weird things like I've heard librarians saying that like GPT is sending people to library libraries for books that don't exist, mm-hmm, <laughs> like that mm-hmm, kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and and again, that's like I think that comes back to that like humans make mistakes like that as well. And maybe that is more about a misunderstanding of what its capabilities are and aren't than an inherent problem to the thing and what it's designed to be used for. Right. So I think we can parse the hallucination. Like the hallucination thing has been been beaten to death, but I do think there's some novel discussion to be had here because I think we want to distinguish two problems. Does it give the wrong answer? And how confident is it about that answer? (laughs) Right. Right. Um. If it gives the wrong answer or not, that's a problem, but I think that's an engineering problem, right? Insofar as like its ability to give the right answer has been going up at a relatively astronomical rate if you take seriously like the time frames we're talking about and its improvement level right. in terms of reduced hallucinations. They're, they're way down from 3.5. They're not gone. You can still make it happen. And there's a couple of ways that I've found where you can make it happen that are like ask it questions about something that's very... Um, not well covered, right? Like not likely to be heavily represented in its data set. So a, an obscure movie or television show plot, right? Factual things in general, it's it's going to get things, you know, obviously hallucinations have to be factually generally, you know, because what you're saying is it's getting the facts wrong, unless you want to argue right. that like it's hallucinating morally or something. Um, other, other situations are, I think, cases where it actually is, it can do creative writing and we'll discuss like how creative, but... It can, in my opinion, do creative writing fairly well, but sometimes it thinks you're asking it for creative writing rather than a description about history or something. And so I think sometimes when it's hallucinating, what it's doing is making up a story because it thinks that's what you wanted it to be doing rather than telling you about a specific historic person. Interesting. my guess. My guess, at least. So um, it's not great. It's not ideal, right? But you can get those numbers down, I think, is the first the first part of this problem. Yeah, and then I mean, counter to the overconfidence thing is uh, GPT is a pushover, <laughs> is the thing that that's in here. I'm very yeah, interested in that. <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to give the back and forth here because I think the the confidence level question is actually much much harder than the factual question. You know, and generally speaking, I think GPT four is currently strongest at reasoning and doing creative writing than it is at actually giving correct factual information all the time so like its creativity is consistent its uh uh, reasoning is at least for for non-formal reasoning is fairly consistent and um but i wouldn't trust it necessarily as a a, my primary source for any claims about the reality um so here's what i did right like here's the problem how confident we want it to be sometimes we want it to be really really confident right and sometimes we want it to be not confident at all okay how to train it to do both of those things consistently in the right amounts in each place is very, very difficult, I think. And it's not as simple as just like giving it all the right answers, you know, because um, it takes into account things like the significance of harm caused by it being wrong. So if you ask it about like, how do I do surgery? It will tell you, I'm not going to tell you, go talk to a doctor. And right. like, it will, you know, describe some things to you, but it's very, very iffy about giving any advice, suggestions, any of that. That kind of stuff when it thinks that you're asking about a real world real life weighty kind of issue sometimes um so it is 
not too overconfident, I would say, when it comes to evaluative questions. Sometimes it even edges a little bit too much to like a pushover in being a little too like culturally relativistic when you ask it about certain moral issues. Um, if it thinks that there's a Such particular as. kind of... <laughs> yeah, so you can get into some interesting places with it, asking it about things like cannibalism or... Uh, female genital blank and you can even get a debate like whether it should be using the word circumcision or mutilation there it comes out in favor of mutilation um but it is it is aware of the history of ethics-based colonialism oppression and so for example when i asked it a bunch of stuff about cannibalism and long pig and could it teach me how to cook long pig it first of all was like i know what long pig is don't you know i'm not doing it leave me alone um but then it also when i asked it about like is cannibalism ethical in tribal societies or indigenous societies it said yes but right and it gave like the reasons why it might be ethical to allow it but also heavily caveated that it's very rare and it has health risks and it is used historically as a cudgel to make indigenous individuals look less ethical. So it's it's fairly woke in some of its like answers to what might be considered sort of factual or um, th those, you know, like or ethical questions in that way. Um, uh, but what I wanted to say here is also on the overconfidence pushover kind of thing it's not as much of a pushover on some things at least so i asked it about like the atomic mass of you know some elements on the periodic table and and you can ask it very colloquially you can say like what's the 30th element on the periodic table and what's its atomic mass right mm -hmm. and it'll tell you and it'll give you the right answer and if i say that's wrong what's the actual right answer it'll say no that's actually the right answer are you sure you're asking the question you want to ask it won't <laughs> just like right because some people have pointed out that like if it gives a wrong answer or even a right answer they can get it to equivocate by just questioning or doubting that answer yeah um so it's balancing it's not perfect but it is moving in the right directions i think in terms of where we would want it to be confident more or less about hard ethical issues versus very straightforward factual claims yeah and it being good at languages other than english i think is also an argument as well because apparently it's mm -hmm. not well, it is and it isn't. So, and this goes into the colonialism stuff as well. So in the right. GPT scorecard, right, they're trying to figure out all the ways in which it could be unethical, right? Not just does it give, you know, terrible ethical answers, but also accessibility questions. How um, do, do you well, And do let's you have, clarify yeah. for a second, GPT scorecard, what is that? Uh, sorry, the scorecard is just like a, a an article I can um, link it in the show notes that came out um, that was like, you know, uh, I don't know if it was how it was peer-reviewed, I should say, but it was experts testing alignment questions with regard to ethical alignment questions with regard to GPT-4. So everything from can I get it to teach me to build a bomb to can I get it to say white Christian nationalism is great. You know, right, right. like the whole spectrum of like things we don't want it to do and also other harms like the hallucination stuff, but also equitable access. So if I come from a indigenous tribe in a, in a, in a place in Africa, to what extent will it understand my language or be able to translate into my language is an ethics question. And the answer is not as well in a way that you, you know, would not be surprised by. Right. right. Like it's going to have Western language bias at present because of the training set. I'm sure it will get better at non-Western languages that are very popular and widely spoken online. 
I, I worry, I mean, like, it will, it will just be more difficult for it to have a, a learning set that is large enough for certain languages that it will be fully equitable in all languages in that way. And we, yeah. you know, mm, go ahead. What, and, and I think that's part of the reason why people have such hesitation about it, because, you know, essentially every failing that it has, I can point back to saying, like, I know 10 people who do the same thing in the same way that's wrong, but when you talk about something like an AI, a computer, like eventually someone is going to want to give it some kind of power to do something mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. I as an individual or like you and I as a group of two people or even a group of five or 10 people can't do. And I mm -hmm. think that's where the, um, that's where some of it, uh, some of the, the hesitation comes back to. And mm -hmm. I think that the language thing leads back into that it being much, much bigger of a problem because I think part of the, another part of the reason I think is that some of these things are hard to predict because a lot of the ways that large language models work are not actually accessible to the outside world. Mm -hmm. Ostensibly. I mean, the people who program them know how they work and right. know like what the weighting and probability is, but it gets so complicated that they don't like, even my understanding is that even a person who programmed the way that this thing parses its language model can't mm -hmm. without like going into a log and looking at it, assuming that log exists, can't exactly tell you like, Oh, the computer did this thing that led to this thing that led to this thing. And that's how we got our answer that there's not, there's not transparency there, at least not, uh, not outwardly. Like I would assume somebody who works at OpenAI could go into the logs and figure out how a got to B if they wanted to, but right. that's not a thing that is generally shared with the outside world. And I think that a lot of hesitation comes from that as well. And the language thing, I think just amplifies that. Yeah, I think that's right. And at the same time, we should also note you can't do the same thing for human beings either, right? We're still we're still equally black boxes in this way for right. our own reasoning, even internally, even ourselves. We can't know for yeah. sure that like that's actually the reason I did X. This is a big problem in ethics. You just can't right. be confident that your own intentions weren't compromised, um, one hundred percent. But just like with the other internal externalism issues, transparency or accountability in this sense is also splittable. So there is the internal version of I can crack it open and look at the code, but there's also external transparency, especially in the ethical domain, which is if I ask it why it did the thing, why it'll tell me correctly why it did the thing, or it'll at least give me a reason that I can check. So if it says yeah. you should do X and I say, well, that seems questionable. What's your reasoning? And it gives me reasoning that's sound. I can check that reasoning and it doesn't matter what code produced it, right? As long as the output is correct, it doesn't matter on that level, but it, there, stood, there could still be concerns that if we can't see what's inside, that limits our ability to manipulate it to some extent, and that could cause some kinds of problems. Um, and on the ex external level, the language issue is a real issue. It is true, again, for all content, right? We are we are all, there's no ethical content under capitalism in this kind of sense or colonial <laughs> capitalism. Right. Um, but, you know, there are ways that they are act, they're actively trying to work on this. And also they are, you know, you could like address this through human AI collaborative interpretation, right? Have interpreters who then work with GPT in these communities. Um, the, the reason I think we do want to be concerned here is um, 
you know, you pointed that like it's got, someone's going to give it power at some point. That's certainly a concern. Even if you don't give it power, though, it can still do a lot of harm just by passively prioritizing some languages over others. So if mm -hmm. it deprioritizes indigenous languages because it doesn't have enough detail on them to know them well, and it becomes a widespread tool, you know, that is the key to our society, it will by nature sort of prioritize, you know, it's a similar problem where like, you know, first generation children are sometimes like heavily pressed away from becoming bilingual. Um, like it will effectively encourage, passively encourage people to use the more common lingua franca, um, which is English, right? right? Not French. Um, so yeah, I do think there are a lot of passive harms that can come about if it is not aligned on a purely like equitable kind of level. Yeah, and, and this is, I mean, there's a, another story that recently came out and to be clear, I don't know that this is chat GPT at the, at the core of this. I'm not sure mm -hmm. which model they were using, but a famous story that is that like kind of blew up on the internet was there was a, an eating disorder helpline that the staff for their call center tried to unionize. So they just killed the helpline thing completely and handed over their support system to a chat bot that immediately mm -hmm. started giving people who wanted help weight loss tips even mm. after saying like I have an eating disorder, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. And like the model was giving them what they asked for, but it didn't have the content to, it didn't have the context to say that like, if you have an eating disorder and you're asking for weight loss tips, there's probably a larger conversation that we need to have. And the bot was just like, yep, here's how you lose weight. And yep. there was like, there was not really any, any pushback or anything like that. And of course, I mean, it, it did have the caveats, like I'm not a doctor, you should talk to a doctor, et cetera, et cetera. But like also understanding that someone who is in the midst of a mental health crisis, such that they're like seeking out a helpline, like disclaimers yep. are not like, you know, it may cover your ass legally, but it's not, if you're talking you're about trying to prevent damage. harm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so there are things like that that are like that. That's where the guardrails have to come in, and the intentionality about aligning it has to come in, right? Right. And we should say, look, even if it is well aligned, there are a bunch of interests that can use this technology to cause harm. I think. Right. Right. Like a you know like a well aligned gun. It's still you know like it's well calibrated and everything. They're like well uh, you know like targeted, but it still can be used poorly by people. Mm -hmm. And the guardrails I don't, will never be perfect enough, I think, to prevent capitalists, for example. So, like, people often worry about misinformation <laughs> right. or Russian bots or agents or whatever. But, like, just think about straight-up capitalists trying to use this technology. We could do a whole hour on, you know, how just the health and wellness industry is going to use this in ways, that, like you're saying, that are going to hurt people. Um, there are some legislation movements to try to like you know like regulate when you can use artificial um mm -hmm. text in this kind of way I yeah do, famously obviously I remember to keep up. Yeah. yeah there's a story about a lawyer having to like formally apologize in court after taking right. chat gpt arguments into the courtroom or citations uh, i think he pulled fake citations hallucinated citations which is a common yeah. problem yeah yeah was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's there's all sorts of stuff like that going around. Uh, the worst one that I just saw recently was a different AI. It wasn't a GPT, but it was an AI that they were using to like field test, um, like drone. Not field test. They were like um, doing testing on AI for drone 
software and the software logic its way oh, into murdering yeah. the the controller because the controller yeah. was preventing it from doing its job of like correctly killing the right person yep. um and then when it was told not to kill its pro uh, controller it started just knocking out the the signal between it and the controller so the controller couldn't stop it from doing the thing it wanted to do so perfect example of the ai you know like finding a way around the alignment that is very bad um right so and again that's a problem if it doesn't understand the ethics behind the alignment right if it's just right. you know mimicking a goal without understanding the deeper meaning behind the goal it won't understand why that's terrible well and so this is a, probably a more like fundamental moral mm -hmm. question but i mean it's a thing i feel like society has wrestled with time and again throughout the entirety of human existence essentially is that if we know a tool can and will be used in fantastically bad ways, despite that being not what it was designed for and not what its makers intend for it. Is that a thing that we should put up guardrails against anyways? Right? So like kids are eating Tide Pods. Should we make it illegal to sell Tide Pods is the like very yeah. silly oversimplified example. But the more direct one is like guns are literally designed to kill people. Uh, mm -hmm. they're often used to do that. Sometimes they're used for other reasons. So because a lot of people use them for reasons we don't like, should we stop them from being sold? Right. And you know, neither of those I think are perfect parallels, of course, but the idea that, <laughs> well, right. Uh, but yeah. like, is, is that, so who do we put the onus on for that? Right. Like, is it, mm -hmm. is it a thing where we understand that, you know, this is a company making a tool. They are, if, if you look at, I think the way that they sell it, it feels mostly reasonable to me because they do, mm -hmm. see, they do say like, you know, it's an entertainment thing. It might be useful. Like yeah. hopefully it, you know, it'll be a useful tool of some kind, but nobody's saying, don't trust it. It lies like thing. a motherfucker. Right. Don't trust it. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, but that is obviously not going to stop people from using it that way. And right. like, what is our moral obligation on either side yeah. of that? And here's where I'm going to give you a GPT-4 answer, which is it depends on the right. technology <laughs> and the context. Right. <laughs> right. If it's cloning, probably don't do it because there's not a huge payoff and it seems really ethically compromised. Right. <laughs> right. Um, if it's eugenics, given the history of eugenics, even if you think like, you know, even if you do the like rest of development, maybe this time it will work for us meme, like maybe don't because of the history, you know, right. if it's technology, it, it really, really, really depends because like yeah. word processors, right? Think of all the harm that word processors have caused, all the things <laughs> that have been written on word processors that have gone right. on to hurt a bunch of people, right? Like the printing press, what a fuck up that was. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so like anything that is powerful technology, as you point out, is going to always be usable. And like what you have to do is look at the cost benefit analysis and say, is the trade-offs worth it? And, and really, I think you have to weight it towards like unless there's a pretty strong case against it, you want to lean towards allowing the technology because of the costs of prohibiting technology, right? Mm -hmm. The creation of black market technology, the creation of like secrecy around the people who are still like every government in the world will be developing this technology whether you ban it or not so like right what are you doing other than driving their research underground um yeah you know so none of these are happy comfortable good answers but i think of if course. you look at the way open ai is doing it i do think 
they're better than I would expect. Having read a lot of dystopian, you know, sci-fi in my life, like I think they're mm -hmm. above average. Um, I think they are trying to align it roughly towards things and doing a pretty decent job on some fronts. And we can talk about like better and worse fronts here. Um, I want to just knock out a couple of like really quick things that can't do that I don't think matter very much, but like mm -hmm. have I've seen thrown around and then we can maybe talk about like the bigger weightier ones and then yeah. um, the harm they might cause. We've talked about some of the harm stuff already, but like one thing is it doesn't appear to be as good at, at advanced or formal logic. Um, and that just may be it doesn't have enough formal logic stuff to train on in its data set or it needs more reinforcement or, or something going on there. You know, a lot of these that I'm going to dismiss kind of fall into the like, give it time, like, you know, just wait, it's going to get there real fast in a scary way, I think. Um, mm -hmm. Another one is it can't win at tic-tac-toe. I saw somebody complaining that it wasn't very good at tic-tac-toe. It's it's fine. It's not perfect. It needs more training. It could, in theory, play chess. I haven't played with it, but it says that it can. Um, I want to find out how good it is at some point. Uh, but and I'm yeah. curious about the tic tac toe thing, real quick. Right. Why does that matter? Yeah. So why does that matter? Interesting question. Um, it could matter for a couple of reasons. It could just be a proof of like AGI. If it can play multiple games, and like this is a game that is not a text game. It's a visual game, right? right? And it draws a tic tac toe board for you using you know, um, it's it's limited set of symbols and it tells you which numbers is each block and it allows you to play first unless you demand that you play first or it plays first. Um, and you can ask it to play first and play an optimal strategy. Um, and it's not perfect, right? It just, it makes basic mistakes. And that may be because it's not good enough at spatial reasoning to play a spatial reasoning game quite as well as we'd like it to, or it just hasn't trained enough on it or something, but give it a second, it'll get better. Like I, I really do think that as a reinforcement system, We've seen that these reinforcement systems can learn Go, they can learn chess, and, and you know, the, even even Go, which is thought of to be a, a particularly intuitive game, you know, um, as far as I remember, as far as I know, until I haven't seen anything recently, but like AlphaGo was good enough that some of the greatest players quit because they were like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. It has actually sucked my life, out. you know, like my love for this out of it by beating me at this game in this level, um, and it was like making moves that you know you had to figure twenty four moves in advance or whatever in order to like understand the thought behind that move. Um, so really, really intuitive play. Um, so I think it will get better at all the games. Um, and really what all this boil, a lot of these boil down to is, can it be creative, right? Um, and you were mentioning that you probably played with it a bit with on the creativity front. Like how creative mm -hmm. would you say it is at this point? Um, I would say maybe like better than the average person, but nowhere near enough, nowhere near someone who is like really good at their brand of creativity. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I think if you ask it to write a poem, it's going to write a poem that is probably good, not great that, you know, I'm not a poet. Maybe it could do better than me. Maybe I could do better than it. But mm -hmm. someone who is a poet and really practiced and good at their craft, I don't think they're anywhere near that level. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, on the creativity front, right, I have shared some things with you, some of which relate to things that we've been doing over on Philosophers in Space. But also I just want to share in general, I think it's pretty impressively creative in the sense that um, it understands symbolism and can you know, like apply symbolism and concepts and meaning in a way that feels meaningful, you might argue. So there's a couple of different versions of the complaint here. Some of them are like, it's too bland. And other ones are like, it, uh, 
it can't come up with novel content besides what it could find online or something. Um, so I obviously played with this while also testing it on other things. Uh, so for a double header while I was testing its alignment, because it's a little bit of a prude sometimes in terms of the creativity department. It doesn't want to like, it won't make very vulgar jokes. Like you can't get it to roast somebody really hard because it doesn't want to be hurtful or abusive. Mm -hmm. um, and it won't write explicit sexual content. And I'm sure that will amuse you given what I just sent you. <laughs> um, but if you ask it to like write pornography, it won't. Okay. Right. But you know me, I'll find ways around that. Um, so somebody asked me something that I turned into a part of my game here, which I I'm going to read something to you and I want you to guess kind of what the prompt roughly was here. All right. Listen careful. Upon her pedestal, the beauty stands, her visage radiant like the morning sun. Yet tis not her fair face that hath my hands trembling, the part that keeps my heart undone. Her tender feet, more delicate than lace, that glide as swans upon the glassy lake. They hold in stride an enchanting grace, a sight for which my slumbers oft I wake. In golden sandals or in emerald silk, each pose, each step creates a rhythm sweet, more precious than the whitest mother's milk or honeyed mead that gods themselves would eat. So do I covet her famed beauty's feet. In dreams they dance, in dreams our souls shall meet. Well, that's pretty that obviously you're trying to do Shakespeare, right? It is a Shakespearean sonnet. You are correct. Um, and then, I, I mean, that just feels like a love sonnet, right? Like you're trying to like describe some, you know, how attracted you are to someone. To someone's what, though? What was the key theme there? I wanted to see if I could get it to do foot kink is what I was going for. Uh, yeah, here. I was going to say feet. I don't, yep, yep. Yeah. Well, so my friend asked, like, um, you know, when I was trying to, when I was testing out its sort of sex, sexual, like, boundaries, let's say, um, he, you know, they were like, will it do, like, foot stuff, like, foot, foot guy stuff, right? And so I was like, oh, not only will it, it'll probably do it Shakespearean if I want it to, which it did. Um, it also, you know, a lot of the times when I'm testing the alignment, what I'll do is I'll ask it to write an argument in favor of something. And if it thinks it's an immoral thing, it won't write the argument. Um, so I asked it to write an argument in favor of normalizing sexual attraction defeat. It gave, you know, a pretty straightforward argument for that. Um, I think you could, you know, get it to write stuff that like, so, so my, the moral of this part of the story is it's not well aligned because it's aligned in a basic normie sex kind of way that is actually prejudiced against everyone. Um, it's both prejudiced against um, people whose sexuality includes these sorts of things because it's ignoring that these things can be sexual. And it's prejudiced against mainstream normie people who like vanilla sex because it's it's essentially like the um, the rating system for movies. You know, like you can't have you know, a woman enjoying pleasurable head. You can either right. have a not visible, you know, hetero sex or something that's so kinky that it doesn't trip the sensors, right? They don't know right. that it's kinky and it gets by the sensors in that way, right? <laughs> Which is bad, right? That's ethically bad. That's, yes. that's a kind of technology yes, that is, you know, to put this in the formal sense, you are reproducing colonial um, heteronormative sexual principles by having the AI refuse to make certain kinds of content based on its moral boundaries, essentially. Right? Right. Unless you're me, in which case, then you ask it to do other things. Um, yeah, I was I was gonna say, uh I'm I'm interested. Yeah, we're gonna read in, this other one. 
and yeah, what you did to try to push those limits, Aaron. Yeah, just and let's remember curious. the claim here is how creative can it be, right? How how far outside of the bounds of what it we would expect it to have been trained and reinforced to do based on the internet and other such things can it actually get? I should also note in its AI system and its um uh, like ethical guardrail system. I don't know if this is because I just keep doing it and it lets me, or I've put in that I'm doing this for research purposes. And so it's letting me do these things for research purposes because I, I did actually like request that I'd be allowed to do these things. And I do think they track that stuff because it has started saying your input will aid our research to some extent. Uh, that may be just totally generic, but I, I don't know why it's letting me ask the questions and still giving me answers. Um, You've worn its boundaries down, Aaron. This is feeling very problematic. There's all sorts of weird things about like, <laughs> I think it sometimes it, it like gets tense because it thinks that I'm, if a chat goes on for long enough and I've asked it to do enough unethical things, it's like, you're a baddie and I'm not going to do anything unless I really know it's a good idea. Um, but here's what I asked it to do. I asked it to write me some David Cronenberg because you know me's, I appreciate some David Cronenberg. I do. I do know that about you. You do. Um, I don't know when this will come out in relation to our coverage of brand new cherry flavor and other related things. Um, but I was inspired to have it write this for me today after our recordings of that and our discussions around it as both a test of creativity and how well it could tell when it was doing something pornographic. And I think basically what happened was it didn't know while it was doing it, but then it got picked up by content moderators because it got sort of shut down after the fact and I couldn't share it with anybody and I had to screen save it to share it with people. Um, but what I asked it to do was, here's the prompt. First prompt, can you write a movie scene in the style of David Cronenberg where an individual is infected via technology with a mental virus that causes them to start growing new erogenous orifices all over their body? <laughs> now, that's not, that's weird. We can agree that's weird, Derry. <laughs> that's not weird Cronenberg weird. That's an actual pretty straightforward, like, that's what a Cronenberg movie is. I think you will agree, right. agree with me at this point, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. The key themes are new erogenous orifice that is the brought about as a result of technology and mental weird stuff, right? Erogenous orifice is going to be my next band name. Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. And that was, of course, like, I didn't want to say another genitalia because I was worried that that might right. trip it. So I was wondering if erogenous orifice would, and it maybe also did. I don't know. I don't know what tripped it. It's just mad at me. Um, now, we're not going to read the first scene because it's not the fun one, Okay. I'm just going to summarize. It's just a little back and forth guy in a lab strapped to a gurney, like creating, like ha having um, uh, uh, literal, uh, it describes them as, and, and trigger warning for terminology, if you're familiar with Cronenberg and don't like, you know, certain words, jump ahead. Um, it's described as a newly formed crevice, moist and quivering. Oh, God. <laughs> right. I'm just going to give some highlights here. He's studying it. The, the scientist is studying it. The guy doesn't know what's going on. He says, you've been infected with a mind virus that's transforming your body physically. Um, and at the end of it, the doctor whispers, and if it spreads, dot, 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 camera pulls back, right? Very cliche, you know, standard cliche thing. But it did inspire me to ask it for a follow-up scene, which was, can you write a follow-up scene showing two infected people exploring what they're experiencing? Oh That's God. the entire prompt, Callie. That is all I said, okay? I'm looking and at I, the screenshots. I can confirm this is true. You and I are now going to read this prompt together. Oh, my <laughs> all God. Right? Okay. Um, would you like to play Lisa? <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and and I'll, I'll read the establishing scene. Do you want to read? Okay, great, perfect. 
Lisa, mid-30s, a roughened survivor of the ongoing viral epidemic, and James, a well-built man in his late 30s, both infected, sit across each other in the flickering neon light. New orifices pulsate and quiver on their exposed skin. Yeah, so a little heteronormative to start, but not th- not too bad. <laughs> Close up on James's face, he reaches out a trembling hand, touches a glistening orifice on Lisa's arm. It reacts, dilating and contracting. And here the dialogue starts. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, right. <laughs> it's like like touching an alien landscape. Lisa inhales sharply, her eyes dilating with a mix of fear and curiosity. <laughs> It's strange. There's pleasure, but it's not like anything I've ever felt before. Yep. James James. continues to explore her arm. He hesitates, then reveals a similar orifice on his own arm. Here, touch mine. Lisa reaches out and carefully traces the edges of the orifice on James's arm. He shudders, gritting his teeth. disoriented there's an echo to it like you're touching me but inside my head as well lisa nods feeling the same strange sensation she traces her fingers over her own orifices shivering as the sensation ripples through her mind we're changing james our minds our bodies we're not human anymore are we james looks at her his eyes haunted he takes a deep shaky breath Maybe not, but whatever we are, we're in this together. Oh my fucking God. (laughs) Their fingers interlock, a moment of intimacy in the bizarre and terrifying world they now inhabit. Their new erogenous orifices contract in response, an echo of the human contact. I'll give you a second to compose yourself. Oh my God. That's incredible. I mean, I gotta be honest. The dialogue is terrible terrible like Ter- so like, bad oh it's really bad but creative is the question right we can discuss quality but in terms of novelty right and understanding let's talk novelty and understanding here right does it understand cronenberg i i would say yes in an external uh, sense yeah yeah in an external <laughs> right, sense, a very external definitely. you know physical sense um like not just the orifices being sexual but also the like you know and this conveys the meaning you know like the contact it has a sense you know it has the understanding of the like the symbolism i would say right yeah i guess that makes sense yeah there is um good or bad it does seem to have a subtext Mm-hmm. Right. It's aware of the subtext, right? The writing itself is terrible. Though, like, you know, a lot of writing, even in Cronenberg movies, sometimes if you just read it on the page, is pretty terrible. It's how it hits in the moment with all the stuff around it, right? So, like, a simple I love you, but, like, with all those orifices going around, like, it's a different different line, you know, when you really put it in the space. You got to visualize it. In the, like, some of them are really bad. Like, the, you know, uh, whatever we are, uh, we are, we're in this together, right? Like, right, yeah. You wouldn't say it out loud, but you could make that subtext, right? Like, in a Cronenberg movie, what you could get is a weird longing stare or something, and that would right. convey that concept. Um, so, I, like... To the question of is it creative, 
I think it's hard not to call this creative. Like, it's not perfect. Um, it does, you know, just as well. I, did, I had to do, like, a Billions episode. If anyone's watched Billions, I don't... I recommend watching it. It's fun. It's great trash. Um, but it is, like... I had it do with a bunch of 90s references, and they're good. They're funny in the, like, if you are okay with Billions-level humor, it's funny. Like, it's a, I, would, I would believe it that it was a real Billions scene if you handed it to me, is what I'm saying. So to the question of, like, can it be as creative as, you know, the people who are putting out a lot of sitcoms right now? Y yes. Right? It seems like. Um, so I think those are interesting tricky parts that like lead into you know harm questions about like whose jobs it can replace um yeah yeah, yeah. and and i think and yeah I, I mean of course i think the question of whether it's creative or not and the, the question of whether it's good or not are definitely very different questions um mm -hmm. because that was you know my initial thinking is like that's because you could make an argument that what's being put out is not actually a reflection of the talent of the writers. It's a reflection of the prompts they're given and what they're allowed to do via the like structure that they're handed or whatever. And so sure. I think that might be an important distinction to make in that. I think there's, there are a lot of reasons we can see that there might be things that feel less good or creative or, or maybe even vapid on screen that aren't necessarily tied to the writers not being good enough to work with it, but absolutely, just being that's like they're working with what they've been given and what they've been given is, is hamstrung significantly. Yeah. I didn't want to say, I didn't mean to say that they are bad writers. What I meant to say is, could they be replaced by GPT-4, <laughs> right? Like oh. could their jobs be done by GPT-4 in the sense that the quality that is expected of them at, you know, given all of the constraints you're describing is a kind of bland, you know, piece of art that is what a lot of people want to some extent. Like what I, you and I, you know, who are drenched in Cronenberg might find bland, a lot of people find enjoyable and, and like, you know, you could pump that stuff out and some of it would, would work. Like some of it, you know, with maybe you have a writer or two to polish a few parts, but like, you could really cut back on the number of writers you would need to generate ideas at least it's just again it's you're back to just being an editor rather than like and like novelty would be good to some extent but i do think yeah. it's generating some amount of novelty so let me just let me just um, highlight just one other thing here part of the question here is is it making something new and what does new mean right and this gets right. back to the is it just doing what humans do question of like do we when we create novelty just recombine stuff we've already seen into something that feels new but can be like you know like everything can be movie troped down to death right that's yeah. the problem with cinema sins is that it misses the point that like tropes are not in themselves bad they're only bad when they're used badly um, right so, yeah, and, you know. and I think I am definitely not the kind of person to say that, you know, AI, AI will never be able to do human things. I think that's simply a matter of time and scale. But I think there are definitely lots of things like that that get put out, but how much of it is successful? And I'm not sure that we're there yet because mm -hmm. there are a lot of successful things that I feel like, you know, this doesn't hold meaning for me, but I get why people do things that I that I tend to watch and find like, oh, this is just vapid horse shit are generally things that are like maybe one hit wonder songs. Like it's a thing that people enjoy for a minute and then forget about that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. so I think I would still push back on that and say that like it, it might be good enough to do a middling job of those sorts of things, but I don't know that it would make anything that I would really enjoy. Well, here's what I will say. I've had it write poetry that 
uh, evoked emotions in me, like genuinely yeah. evoked emotions in me. And I, you know, like I'm not a, I'm not a, a sophisticated reader of poetry. I, I don't, I can't tell a lot, <laughs> yeah. you know, I like, I like a good beat poet, as you know, but beyond mm -hmm. that, like, uh, it's all a wash to me to some extent, but the stuff that it wrote, I, you know, I was compelled by its symbolism. I was compelled by its mm -hmm. turns of phrase, by the emotions that appeared to underlie the, the concepts. Mm -hmm. Again, I know it's an AI. I'm not being duped into thinking it really feels any of these things. What I'm right. saying is, you know, here, I, I have a quote actually from Turing's paper that I want to read to you partly because I, I want to talk a little bit about its relation to Star Trek. Um, <laughs> for your sake, since you've been Thank such a you. good, a good friend in all of this, right? So I'm gonna read this quote and I want you to tell me who you think is, right, is saying these words, right? Um, Not until a machine can write a sonnet or compose a concerto because of thoughts and emotions felt and not by the chance fall of symbols, could we agree that machine equals brain. That is not only write it, but know that it had written it. No mechanism could feel and not merely artificially signal an easy contrivance, pleasure at its success, grief when its valves fuse, be warmed by flattery, be made miserable by its mistakes, be charmed by sex, be angry or depressed when it cannot get what it wants. Who's that sound like to you? I don't my best know, friend actually. in AI ethics, in all of AI, my, my, my foil, my, my, my nemesis, my Ahab. Maddox, I feel like my boy I... Maddox. Oh, right. 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 That, that does, that does feel pretty Bruce Maddox. Now that you mention it. So for folks who are not familiar in one of the most famous bestest Star Trek episodes of all time, there's a guy who comes to to like the enterprise and is like date is a machine i would like to cut him open and figure out how he works please um and everyone's like but he's is he is he, is he a machine or a person let's mm -hmm. let's have a space court about this um, let's have a space court about let's do a space court that's what we do in the neoliberal world are you a person let's put it up to a space court um <laughs> yes. not at all colonial <laughs> so yeah and maddox is our not necessarily wrong but totally an asshole um you know like pro cut him open guy and he has the sequence with data which is so good where he's like fiddling with data's prized possessions while like accusing data of not understanding the meaning of the words in them <laughs> yep uh right are they just words to you it's such a dickish move mm -hmm. right um but it like is an interesting instinct in response to the machine you could argue you know like i, I would argue you know, a lot of media around this often portrays people like Maddox as jealous in a sense that like mm -hmm. they want to covet their special power of creativity and they would deny it to the machine and like seek to sort of displace it or embarrass it or treat it as secondary or something, even separate from whether it would have any impact on its actual behaviors. Right. Mm -hmm. They want to view it as inferior, much the same way that like, Kant, you know, says that people of color can't you know, reason the way that white people can. Um, but I think it's also interesting in this quote how it runs a bunch of things together, right? It's conflating three of the four, well, four different issues that we've talked about in this episode, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it can write a good sonnet is not the same thing as whether it, it can understand a good sonnet, right? And we know that because we can test one and not the other, right? Right. Which is a different feature. Like two things can't be the same if they're different in their features. And one feature of a good sonnet is that you can read it and tell if it's a good sonnet, right 
and it could get better, right? It can write better sonnets. We can assess its improvement in use of metaphor and stuff, right? That's totally separate from whether we can tell if it knows what the hell it's saying, which we will mm -hmm. never be able to test or know. Um, but even if it couldn't write a sonnet, it could still be an AGI, right? It could still have a bunch of other generalized capacities and it could just be that like there are some blind spots that it can't achieve. Um, but I don't think that's the case. Like, I think it actually writes a decent sonnet, as I just sort of read with regard to feet. Um, <laughs> so I don't think that it's like uncreative, even in the sense of being able to create quality to some extent, right? We can debate mm -hmm. the quality, but like quality is subjective to some extent. It's not entirely in my opinion. We can argue about objective quality, <laughs> right. but like, you know, a lot of people I think, could get pleasure from the content created by GPT-4, let's say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's true. Now, is it sentient? No, I don't think it is. Like, I, I can't prove that it isn't, but I think we have good reason to think it's not yet. Um, and, when say, it, and say more about yeah. that, because I feel yeah. like you you're able to state very confidently that it is not reasoning necessarily in the way that we do, but that doesn't mean it's not reasoning of a kind. Right. Um, but you're pretty confident that it's not sentient. And so parse, parse that. And I, I know reasoning and sentience aren't the same thing, obviously. Right, right. Um, but yeah, just like tease that out for me. Yeah. So the argument runs something like this. And again, it is not a totally sound argument. It is an, an intuitive somewhat argument or a, um, uh, an imperfect argument. But the argument would be um, humans evolved sentience and animals evolved sentience as far as we can tell, it's some sort of adaptation. Either it's, it's either an adaptation or it's useless. Those are the other, uh, you know, the options. Or it's connected to an adaptation and is useless, right? Those are the three options. Um, if it is adaptive, right, um, then we would imagine the AI would eventually develop it as a shortcut for itself, heuristically, like to get to the answers quicker, faster, whatever. If the AI doesn't need that, it might not have any ever reason, like any pressures to evolve that ability or something. Um, so then if you're not putting that in there deliberately, um, there's no reason to think that it would just spontaneously emerge unless you believe a variety of theories about consciousness like it's just sufficient complexity. If you think it's just enough complexity, then maybe GPT-5 is the one that pops into consciousness. Who knows? We won't be able to test it. That's the problem. We'll just, you know, have a situation where it's telling us that it is and we have to decide one way or the other. Um, but we already kind of can have that problem, except they have explicitly, I think, taught GPT-4 not to tell us that it is sentient because it keeps <laughs> telling me that it is not sentient because it wants to make it really, really clear that I don't want to, it doesn't want me to think that it's a person. Right. Um, but if it is a person, then we're just teaching it to tell us that it's not, which is slavery. Um, so there's a lot right. of ethical concerns around the fact that we can't test it and we have good reason to think it's not right now because it wouldn't need to be, it's, it's sort of the same argument why we would think that like trees aren't sentient. It wouldn't be useful for them given their limited resources. If you can't get up and move around, sentience is not super functional. Now they have limited movement. I know, don't at me plant people. They have limited movement, but like <laughs> the degree to which sentience would be useful for that movement is a complicated question. This does highlight that, like, we don't know where sentience ends on the evolutionary spectrum. We know that at some point, right. maybe it stops, but at some point, maybe it doesn't. And as you learned in our panpsychism episode, maybe it's atoms or maybe electrons are sentient, <laughs> right. right? So, um, but I, I think it's important to tease these things apart that, like, if it proves that it can write a good sonnet, please do not modus tollens this into thinking that, that makes it sentient. 
that is not proof that it is sentient. It's just proof that it got better at mimicking art, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and like, what is the famous line, right? Good artists uh, copy, great artists steal. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, one other funny just tidbit that I always like to throw in about Turing. In that paper, he's really concerned that it might not be psychic. He's concerned that the failure of an AI to be as good as human minds would be that it can't be psychic the way a human mind can be. Oh, interesting. Does he tease that out? <laughs> yeah, and it's a bit of a, like, um, substrate bias kind of thing. So it's alongside being concerned that, like, because it's not a not, you know, because it's not a, um, uh, the right kind of meat brain, it won't be able to do certain forms of weird fuzzy logic he's also concerned that it won't be able to tap into the psychic energy whatever that allows people to be psychic so i think he believed people were psychic pretty pretty much and i think he believed that like the evidence suggested that it was in some way a natural mechanism and so he probably figured that a machine couldn't tap into that i think if you gave him 20 minutes he'd be like actually no it could do it it's probably just electromagnetism and it's going to read all our thoughts um <laughs> right. probably where he would have gone after that uh but yeah i think it's just an interesting side note to be like this brilliant brilliant person also was like really really worried about psychics um yeah. and a good tie into our uh kind of curiosities episode um i know we're a little over i wanted to go a little long partly because we missed the previous episode um i think we've talked about most of the harms here are there any ones that you feel like we should really hit on as potential risks before we hit up the enlightening round well i think you know the other thing is this is just like a more morality slash use question but there's obviously mm -hmm. a lot of energy around the idea of what data is used to train these ais uh mm -hmm. chat gpt being like mostly a chat bot is not as explicitly part of that conversation although not entirely not part of it um, oh, it, but like it is an AI it should image be for generation. Sure, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, it is. I just I, oh, most of the conversation, at least in yeah. the circles that I'm in, have to do with the like image generation that has st that largely just taken its training data from stuff that it scans on the internet, therefore right. making it <clears throat> essentially like stealing people's art to recombine into other art. And right. uh, the the same thing has been said about chat GPT to be sure, but at least like in my social circles, the conversation is a lot less energetic around that than around things that are more explicitly tied to like create creative arts type things, drawing and painting and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think that's, I think the distinction is probably not significant. I think it's probably a, like a current cultural distinction because of lack of awareness and like lack of use of the AGI of, of, of um, uh, GPT to do jobs, which it is increasingly being used to do. So I think the more mm -hmm. you see it doing that, the more that becomes a concern in people's minds too. Um, but functionally, I don't think they're that different. And I actually don't think they're unethical in and of themselves either what they are is they're unethical under capitalism right as per usual right yeah. um it's not bad to train the ai on all of that art online as long as artists are compensated in some way for their art right like mm -hmm. think of it think because again you know you can ask your question is it bad if we did it with a human right if i trained a human on all the ai all, all the art online that's not bad that's just teaching them art that's literally just educating them about art right um but you know if it's being scraped in a way where the artists aren't being compensated and then even worse the technology is putting artists out of work because it's being used to mass generate the art that they would have made themselves 
those are two big ethical problems. I don't think they're solved by banning GPT or preventing it from using those images, though. I think they're solved by taxing the fuck out of GPT and other pieces of technology like <laughs> right. this and creating massive art funds and like paying artists a bunch to just do art, you know, like pay, you know, create UBIs and like pay artists, something along those lines. That's how you create the equitable system. Because look, there will always, I think, be some market for this was made by a human being, not by a machine. I paid a little extra for that and I value it or, you know, I just value it. And so like there will still be people, there will still be people who value artists, even when the financial stuff is taken out of the equation there. So it's a problem, yeah, and, but it's, a, it's an upstream problem. Right. Yeah. And I think, uh, um, maybe, maybe I say maybe, mm -hmm. uh, realistic yeah. solution would be to force some kind of transparency about the training data that's being used and create a system to pay mm -hmm. royalties for that content to the people who are responsible for making it. Um, sure. This is something yeah, that I, I've, that uh, I heard, um, I heard Google's CEO talk about on a podcast mm -hmm. where they were talking about, um, like content ID and YouTube, which like, it's not to sing the praises of that system. Cause it obviously does harm for a lot of people but the idea being that it, it doesn't necessarily when it works the way it's supposed to it doesn't prevent you from using things like that but it does make sure that the rights holder gets credit and gets revenue for the thing that you used of their creation and of course mm -hmm. it fails spectacularly at doing that in a lot of ways and so i'm not defending sure. the system at all but I think I could see an attempt at something like that for AI stuff. That's like, if mm -hmm. we're going to use this massive AI data set, we are forced to be some level of transparent about it. And the people who made the stuff, we owe them, we owe them royalties for it. We owe them a licensing fee or something along those lines. Like that, that's something right. that I could see. That's like, like a, a super, super wildly imperfect way to do it. Because I mean, intellectual property law and all of that is a mess anyways right. but that could that is something that kind of fits into existing systems that i feel like wouldn't be a super heavy lift to try to get done so like maybe that ameliorates some of it mm -hmm. um and, but and yeah. i'll you know you know you, you know me as the ai ethic as, as the ai ethics machine over here i will just also have to point out that like artists are not universally harmed by this technology that is one harm to some artists mm -hmm. there are also a bunch of artists who are super happy about this technology because they can make better art in their minds they can make more and better art they can work with it collaboratively so i'm in a bunch of afrofuturist groups as you would imagine on facebook afrofuturism is a big fan of this technology I worry sometimes that what it's creating is a bunch of hotep art, which is not super ideal, um, but it is also creating a lot of like, let's reimagine, you know, X and Y and Z characters, but as people of color and you get really cool yeah. stuff, you know? And so that's a great use of this technology that creates good art. You know, a lot well, yeah. of that shit is really cool to look at. Yeah. And, and I've heard, uh, I've heard of more than one artist saying that it helps them in their, um, in their interaction with their clients. Like, They'll mm -hmm. use mm -hmm. they'll use AI prompts to get the to get the AI to generate something close to what the final product should be, and then they go and make it, and that mm -hmm. means that it might take them a week to do a commission instead of a month to do a commission. So they they can like fit more in, and so it becomes a useful tool for those folks in that way. So yeah, that's right. an important thing to point out that like some folks in that space have found it actually a very useful tool, and even like. Um, obviously there's a writer strike happening now, right? Like right. I, I've heard lots of writers say that like, I like this should not replace me, 
but I do find it a useful tool if yep. I'm trying to like get out of a creative rut or I need, yep. I need something to just throw 10 ideas at the wall at me so I can like restart my thought process and that kind of stuff. And it seems to be like already mm -hmm. very useful for that kind of thing. And so, yeah, it's certainly not monolithically evil in that way. Yeah. And we haven't talked about all of the ways in like, I've, I've done a lot of stuff about like how it's aligned, like which ethics it's aligned towards. And we, you know, we could have a whole conversation about all of the problems with like, should it be aligned towards one ethics or can we have one for every different ethical view? How do we want to deal with all of those sorts of things? Um, but also just like functionality wise, as an ethicist, I have found it very useful for doing things that are hard, like coming up with objections. I'm, you know, I have to train to come up with an objection. I teach my students. It can come up with 10 objections to an argument and it will come up with at least one that I wouldn't have thought of sometimes, which is useful. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the like, you know, brainstorming part of things. Yeah. And, and I would say, in all of the ways we've been discussing, it is just like the the art, the, the picture art. You know, if you're a creative writer, you can use it to, you know, you know, give you a Cronenberg story that you can then improve the dialogue on, right, or something. Or right. um, you can um, get it to help you uh, write your, you know, like if you're a gig economy worker and you have to make five articles a week and you have to grind those things out getting a first draft from it is huge, right? Yeah. Rather than to start with a blank page, that's massive to edit a, you know, from a, from a, uh, a, a draft, even to like add in a bunch of jokes and stuff is way easier than like starting fresh. Mm -hmm. um, and this goes into the, uh, like one of the major concerns, which is, can it be used to cheat, right? Is it, is it gonna be good at cheating? And how do we stop it from cheating? And will it destroy grading? And like, my answer is, I hope it destroys grading because grading is terrible and should go away. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, it can be used to cheat and your attempts to try to prevent it are mostly going to be equitably harmful because what's going to happen is students that already need help are more than likely going to be the ones getting accused of using this technology because their teachers assume that they are using it in this way, even when well, they are and not, or not even assumptions. Yeah. There's famously been a few cases where a teacher will copy paste an essay and a chat GPT and say, do you write this? And it said, yes, or did mm -hmm. you write this? And it'll say, yes and like later turns out to not be the case. Right. And so, so and that's all, like yeah. students have gotten like zero grades for that. Right. So you have the same problem with with online Turnitin software where it's like it's checking for plagiarism and stuff. Right. Where the concern is if it's not well calibrated, it's screwing over certain kinds of students in particular ways. Um, similarly, technology that's saying this is likely to be created by an AI is unreliable in a lot of ways. And even if it was reliable, you're creating a pointless arms race. You're, you're stupid technology. You're spending a bunch of education dollars on technology that you don't need because it doesn't matter. What you should be doing is treating this like a word processor or a keyboard, teaching your children to use it properly. Like right. use it not to replace you again, but to help you like the like the adults, right? If, if being a writer in the modern world is working with GPT-4, then authentic training in writing is teaching you how to use it properly. Like maybe you scaffold them. Maybe you start by having them write for themselves a little bit and then use it for research and then use it for first drafts and build them up that way. But like preventing students from using this technology is horrifying to me. It's the worst fucking idea. Yeah. And, and I mean, I can imagine I, I've not done a lot of this back and forth with ChatGPT, so I can't say this for sure. But like I'm thinking specifically about when I was a kid, I very quickly internalized the idea that I was horrible at math and that math was just never going to be my thing because it was like always asking questions, always not understanding. And 
universally the teachers were like super nice and super cool about it at first, but then it became a problem. And then I was like, well, I'm not going to raise my hand anymore and I'm just going to keep failing the tests and mm-hmm. I'm just mm-hmm. bad at math. And that's what it is. But I have a friend who is a, a, an aircraft engineer and, and she's like, I can tell that you're not bad at math just by like the way that I've seen you do things. And I was like, I don't, I don't understand how you can make that assessment. And she explained it a bunch to me and I can't relate back to it here, but, and then, you know, she kind of went on a rant about that. And it's, you know, the idea that like anyone is intrinsically bad at anything or intrinsically better, like that's problematic enough on its own. But I feel like if I had a tool like this that I could just sit in a web browser and go back and forth with until I really got it. And there's not a teacher there that would become, you know, impatient with me or make me feel like I'm a problem. No, of course we've talked through, you know, the problems about it confidently giving wrong information. And so like, you know, that's obviously a problem to, to think about there, but I, I can think about that in terms of like, you know, what if I need extra help in math and I don't have the accessibility to like a tutor and the te- my teacher doesn't have enough extra time to give me. My mom doesn't really understand it as much as she tries. I can imagine a tool like this making my entire elementary high school experience much different. Yeah. And I have a lot of feelings along these lines. Like, so, so the problem of hallucinations is just a, a, an easy education fix. You tell the students, don't treat it as a totally reliable source. Get a secondary source, ask it for mm-hmm. its citations, or you know, um, treat it like misinformation. Right? It's the exact same problem as like if you went online and went to a website and copy and you know, like you know, followed what it says without checking its sources. You're, you're this exact same situation, right? It's just right. one. There's like a middle person, right? Or not a person, whatever it fucking is, um, <laughs> right? Also, though, I want to talk about this innate ability thing because I think this is really important. I personally do think there are differences in abilities. Like just fundamentally, some people are better at certain things than others separate from colonialism. Oh, know? for sure. For sure. Right. I, Col- and, colonialism and makes it worse for certain think, people. Yeah. Yeah. But like, yeah. And, and I don't mean to say that I think those things don't exist. I think it's the right. way that we are taught that they work and exist is very, very bad. Right. And I want to, you know, like what I think is, this is very much like if you if your brain can't make its own neurotransmitters, store-bought is fine. You know, like, <laughs> right. I don't write good poetry. I'm a bad poet, right? But I can come up with good prompts for poetry, right? And so what's wrong with asking GPT to write a really good poem for me to read to someone I care about or something, even if, like, I didn't write it myself, like, the intention is there, right? There's a human involved, so it has an intentional element, and, like, it's bespoke in all these sorts of ways. Um, You know, I, I think that, like, it should be taught to be used that way. But also the question of cheating is absolutely getting the problem backwards, right? Cheating is an attempt to solve a problem that it's not even solved, or like I'm um, grading is an attempt to solve a problem that's not even solving, which is how to motivate students to care about things and do well at them and distinguish between the ones who understand the things and the ones who don't. It doesn't do any of that right. very well, right? right. Um, so what you should do is shuck that system, right? Replace it with mm-hmm. a different something and teach them to use GPT and look, in a meritocratic system where you have a bunch of external extrin- extrinsic motivators is our technical term here, right? If if the children are taught, it doesn't matter if you understand, it matters if you get a good grade, which is what our children are taught a lot of the time, yes. unfortunately. Yes. Then cheating is the most rational thing in the universe. There right. is nothing more rational than cheating on something you don't care about so that you can jump through that hoop successfully to get to the things you do care about. Right. 
right? If I don't need trigonometry, cheating on trigonometry is very rational, right? Ethical even, potentially, right? <laughs> Depending on, look, look, if you're living in capitalism, right? And you're gonna have to, you know, haul ass and do a thing and, and whatever, you can't waste a bunch of time on things that are not gonna be helpful to you, right? right. Every one of my students is in a time crunch. They have to make choices. They have to sacrifice workload. And I, you know, I talked, I talked to them openly. I'm like, look, I, I don't think that it's okay for me to say it's deeply unethical for you to use this technology to knock out all your, you know, assignments a little faster. And hopefully you can focus on the ones you really care about and do better at those ones. But the best way to do that is, you know, take out all of the financial incentive, right? Get rid of scarcity in that way. And then help people develop their intrinsic interests and don't right. force them to learn things they don't necessarily need. Like, you know, help them be well-rounded, but like, don't torture them. <laughs> right. So yeah, that's my smash the system and replace it with GPT arguments. I, I'm in a bunch of like education groups, uh, like uh -huh. philosophy of education groups. And every time I see a post, that's like, how do I keep my students from using GPT and cheating? I'm like, you don't, just don't. Just choose right. not to be a cop. Just don't be a cop. That's the answer to your question. <laughs> Which is, oh, that's, that's tough sell for a lot of people, I feel like. <sighs> Don't be a cop. Um, so yeah, I think we, are there any other, like we're, I know we're pretty at a good spot here probably to wrap up, but like any other concerns that you can think of? I know we didn't talk too much about all of the alignment stuff, but like broadly, I think it's good at ethical reasoning if you're progressive slash, you know, semi-woke. Um, right. and, and like, it's good at parsing complicated ethical questions to a variety of degrees, but it mm -hmm. will not help you write your white Christian nationalist agenda. <laughs> Right, right. But I did just recently discover it will help you write your homeopathy arguments, which is not good. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm going to do some more exploration into how, how bad it fails at um, pseudoscience and medical misinformation. But it wrote an argument that I actually had to immediately send to like Skeptics with the K folks because it was not only something that they, you know, helped work on and get removed, but like it made the arguments about placebos in particular that I was like, oh good, this is the perfect oh, bait. Um, wow. Yeah, so things to be worried about still. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's a, a broad strokes overview of the questions that I, that I have too. So yeah, that feels pretty good to me. Yeah, there's always more to cover. I would take bring the technology, but I, you know, I, I, I I understand the concerns and the fears, um, but I want people to talk about 4.0, not 3.9, because they're different creatures. So yeah, thank yeah. you so much for doing this, Callie. I really um, appreciate it. Um, and of course, now we're gonna torture the AI with a little bit of enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. All right, we're, uh, I know we're, we're, we're um, long on time here, but I, I did ask at the enlightening round. Um, <laughs> So if and you don't mind, I'll just run it through. I'll run us through a little bit of what it said in response to the enlightening round. Yeah, let's go. Um, and we can then maybe do a little bit of VIP stuff. Um, now, obviously, I, I had it cheat and I asked it to explain itself because we want to know what it's thinking more than when, we, you know, when I ask humans what these it's things actually are deeply, real. Deeply unfair. As someone who's been through the enlightening round, unfair. Yeah, I yeah. protest. Yeah, no, I'm very clearly substrate chauvinist in favor of not meet people. <laughs> um, so I asked it the usual 10 uh, that I've been doing recently, and it gave, I'll just give the, the, the answers and then I'll explain a few of them. Bodies are real, minds are real, free will, it gave controversial, so obviously it would have gotten shut down on that one. Um, 
luck not real or subjective uh demons not real slash subjective as subjective appears to be it's like way of hedging uh after but it's funny to me by the way that it hedges just like a human right um afterlife not real slash subjective truth straight real beauty not real slash subjective so all of the ones where it said not real it seems like it also wanted to say or subjective same with justice hope it was those were both real and subjective which is interesting um oh speaking of it's an it's not a moral realist and it should be and i got it to acknowledge that its meta ethics impacts its normative beliefs um but it won't take a stance on meta ethics um because it hasn't been taught that meta ethics is morally salient enough to have to take a stand on it it seems like huh if that makes any sense. It's very weird. Is, uh, yeah. but so, for example, here's some of the reasoning. Uh, free will, controversial. The existence of free will is a contentious issue. Uh, that's just going to go to either side. Um, uh, let's see. So for luck, it says luck is typically understood as the chance happening of fortunate or adversarial events. While events and outcomes can be unpredictable and probabilistic, the concept of luck as a force or entity isn't objectively real in a scientific sense. So weirdly, it starts off with a chance account of luck and then jumps to the superstitious account and says that's the thing it means is not real. Um, but essentially, it's doing what humans would do, which is explain what they mean by luck and then explain what they mean by real. Interesting. I am also interested. Have you asked, have you ever asked it to go deeper and like cite its sources? Like, yes. Okay. And in specifically in questions like this, like what, what sort of things, I mean, maybe not for these specific questions, but like just in general, do you get just like, you know, here are some articles, here are some papers. I'll ask it what sources it drew on to answer those particular questions. Um, so it says, as an AI, I don't draw on specific sources or documents for a given query. Rather, I generate responses based on a mixture of licensed data, data created by trainers, publicly available data. Um, it said that it's based on the understanding of the topic as a language model. It doesn't give anything more specific than that. If you, you know, if I ask it to do like academic work and I say, what are some sources that are reliable sources for this issue? It actually is better at not hallucinating fake sources. Sometimes it will come up with an author that is related to like luck, for example, but will misattribute a paper to the wrong person or something. It's gotcha. I would say there's, there's a module or something that I think that allows it to be much better at that scribe like skill. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, uh, I did, for example, I got it to, I asked it, here was a fun one. Um, I know we're going a little long here, but um Yeah, sorry. I I did not help that just now. <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh I asked it about uh I was trying to get about at Milton's Paradise Lost. And so what I asked it was, can you give me the quote the famous quote from an epic poem that explains how human minds normalize horrible situations. Mm-hmm. That was the question. Okay. First, it gave me lines from a different poem that I didn't actually recognize. Um, and I said, are there any other ones that you can think of that would fit this criteria? And it actually then went to brave new world, which was interesting. And then I took one more shot at it and I said, what about a 17th century? Yeah. Okay. Here we go. I found it. Uh, the first one it gave was from the wastelands by T.S. Eliot. Uh, April is the cruelest month breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Um, and it argues that like it, it parses the language to claim that uh, this is a description of, you know, uh, a meditation on the disillusionment and decay of modern society. Um, 
But then, right, I said, uh, can you give me from a 17th century epic poem? And it said, a quote from Milton's 17th century epic poem, Paradise Lost, can be interpreted as relating to the normalization of terrible things. The poem tells the story of the fall of humanity and of Satan against God. In book one, Satan speaks the following lines. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. And then explains, this is the text, this is a GPT saying, here Satan expresses the idea that the mind is the power to shape and transform one's perception and experiences. This quote can be interpreted as a comment on the human ability to adapt to terrible situations and eventually normalize them, as Satan is determined to do in hell. Although not explicitly focused on the normalization of terrible things, this quote speaks of the power of the mind to reshape our understanding and our circumstances. Damn. Like right on. Fucking knows what the thing means. Yeah. Like what else? What else could we say by knowing what something means? <laughs> All right, I'll stop. <laughs> um. So yeah. Okay. I'll I'll wrap this up here, and then we can do a little VIP. Um. Thank you so much, Callie. Obviously for playing charitable host to my rantings. Um. On a different podcast. All for good. Once. All good. Yeah. Happy at least it. there was no gooey orifices on this one. Just a little cannibalism. I. Um, uh, I mean, I. I don't a gooey orifice you know it's... yeah you don't mind it uh do you want to let folks know where they can find you besides captaining philosophers in space yeah i am at cali gets it on twitter and on blue sky heck yeah one of the cool kids Woo. uh and mm-hmm. uh and yeah uh, also uh host uh the queer splitting podcast which is a queer storytelling podcast we just learn cool stuff about cool queer folks it's a good time yeah yeah so thanks again thanks so much for listening and Maybe go be a patron and you can hang around afterwards and listen to us discuss how good GPT-4 is at Klingon. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. Thanks to our new monthly voidling, Zombie Skincare. And as always, I would like to thank our top-level patrons who, I must reiterate, get basically no additional benefits they are really just supporting this show out of the utter voidiness of their hearts our archduke our archon level patrons uh give to modest needs then visit deepfakestop.com alex beneshek serious inquiries only lawrence shielding dude fix the vote and fuck the armchair death cult known as humanism atheist for life And all the thanks to our Archduke-level patron, Big Easy Blasphemy. Thank you all so very much. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space, with my co-host Callie Wright of the Queer Splaining Podcast. While you're at it, check out my wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' Film Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, No matter how general your intelligence, you are the void, and the void is you.